Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa salatu wa salam ala ashraf al-anbiya'i wal-mursaleen wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Alhamdulillah, uh, welcome back to our Ramadan series, Conversations from the Qur'an. So inshallah ta'ala, this will be uh, every night all the way up until the end of Ramadan ta'ala, with the exception of Wednesday and uh, possibly Saturday. All right, Wednesday and Saturday will be the two days that we'll take off. But for the rest of the week, inshallah, we'll be here 6 p.m. until it's time to break fast, inshallah. All classes are recorded, uh, audio and video, inshallah ta'ala. And you can always check with YouTube, check on YouTube, inshallah, to see that uh, the recordings have been made available. Okay, so uh, we're talking about conversations from the Quran. So yesterday we talked about the importance of these conversations. So we're going to continue, and this is more like the introduction. We haven't really got into the crux of the um, of this discussion. This is more like an introduction. I would say probably Friday uh, we'll probably begin with the first conversation, inshallah ta'ala. All right, so bear with me as we kind of comb through uh, the introduction to this discussion. So yesterday we were talking about the different conversations that are in the Quran. Some conversations took place before human beings were created, like the conversation between Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the malaika, the angels. There, was <clears throat> there were conversations that took place after human beings were created, like the conversation between Prophet Adam salam, and, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There were conversations that took place uh, after human beings inhabited the earth, like the conversations between the two sons of Adam. We talked about why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't mention the names of a lot of these uh, characters in the Quran or, or individuals in the Quran. Uh, and that is because the concentration is on the lesson that is in the conversation, not the personalities. A lot of times, especially in today's time, we get caught up in the personalities. You know, this person, that person, who said it, who didn't say it. So in the Quran, from the adab, the, the mannerisms of the Quran, is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not get into the personalities of who said what, so that we can concentrate on the lessons. So some of these conversations also uh, that are in the Quran were between the prophets and some of their people, their nations, like the conversation between Prophet Lut and his people, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala captures in surah number 15, ayah 68. If you open the Quran, you have the English translation of the Quran with you, turn to surah number 15, ayah 68. And listen to the conversation, the dialogue between Prophet Lut and his people. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, This is Prophet Lut trying to appeal to his people who had you know, succumb to this uh, behavior of homosexuality, right? And he says to them, talking about the two angels that came down to visit at that time, because Prophet Lut and Prophet Ibrahim lived during the same time, right? They were actually family. 
Um, and so the two angels that came down, Andrew Jibril and Mikael, came down with two uh, uh, a mission, and that was to inform Prophet Ibrahim of the birth of his son Ishaq and to destroy the town of Sodom and Gomorrah. All right. And so once word spread that these two angels, who were in the form of human beings, handsome young men, as when Angel Jibril descends to the lowest heaven, which is our heaven, in human form, he usually takes on the form of a handsome man. If you go back to the story of, uh, uh, of Medium, right, he appeared to Medium as a handsome young man. And she said, you know, fear Allah and don't approach me. So that was Angel Jibril also. So Angel Jibril and Mikael come down in human form. Word begins to spread throughout the town of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so now these men are now lusting after these two men who are essentially angels. And so Prophet Luke says to them, these are my guests. So don't humiliate, don't embarrass me. Don't humiliate me in front of my guests. And then they respond back, didn't we prohibit you from telling us not to not to extend hospitality to everybody in the city, meaning you're going to keep your guests trapped up in the house where only you can give, be hospitable to them? Give us access to them. And then Prophet Luke says back to them, Choose the women of our society if you want to, you know, if you want to engage in intimacy, not the men. Like, don't you have any intellect? You're about to break my door down to get to the men in my house who are guests. And you leave alone the women that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you in the society. So you can see that conversation between them. Very tense. Some of these conversations that are in the Quran are conversations between uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us a little window, a little insight into the conversation between people in paradise and people in the hellfire. That is a very interesting conversation that people who are about to spend eternity in the hellfire actually have the ability to communicate with people who are in paradise. And Allah gives us a window into that conversation. If you turn to sword number seven, ayah 44, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَنَادَى أَصْحَابُ الْجَنَّةِ أَصْحَابِ النَّارِ and the people of paradise will call out to the people in the hellfire, right? This is a conversation between people in paradise and people in the hellfire. Now, my question here is, if there's people in paradise and in the hellfire right now, how is that possible when Yom al-Qiyamah hasn't even happened yet? How's that possible? Yom al-Qiyamah hasn't happened yet. So how are there people in paradise and people in hellfire right now? Uh, yeah, the Qadr of Allah, but... Okay, so when we already have a glimpse of what I hear, keep in mind, we are binded by time. Time doesn't exist to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So essentially, we're like, if I could give you an example, we're like a computer. You know how you're watching a video and it starts buffering and you got to wait until it catches up. So the video is here, but you can't watch it yet because it has to finish buffering. So it has to, it has to catch up. 
That's essentially what's happening. Yom al-Qiyamah, the hereafter, everything is already ha has already happened. We just didn't catch up to it yet because we are essentially binded by time in the physical world. Once we transition from this world to the next world, there is no time. There is, there is no binary called time. It's a construct that only affects us. All right, and I'll, I'll get into that. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so essentially the people that are in paradise, people in the hellfire, Yom al-Qiyamah has already happened. It just didn't happen for us yet. Time doesn't affect Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah doesn't have to wait until Yom al-Qiyamah. You, you follow me? You, you look like you're a little confused. Of course, yes, absolutely, absolutely. The hereafter has already happened. It just didn't, we didn't catch up to it yet. It didn't happen for us yet. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala already knows who's going to paradise, who's already, all of that has already happened. It just didn't happen for us yet because we are binded by time, right? You gotta, you gotta sit for a moment and let that, let that sink. No, everything, everything that is going to happen in the hereafter has already happened. It just didn't happen to us yet. We didn't get there yet. Once we transition from this physical life into the next, the spiritual dimension, then and only then will we see. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that when we will be asked, how long did we dwell on earth? And it will seem like it was like a day or part of a day. Because when we transition to that world, a hundred years in this life will seem just like a, a drop in the bucket, like a blink of an eye, because we're talking about eternity. We're comparing a hundred years, a thousand years, 15 billion years to eternity. So it's going to seem like a blinking of an eye. Allah will ask the people on Yom Al-Qiyamah, how long Allah says, when we will ask them, how long did you dwell in the earth? And they will say, we only lived in the earth for a day or part of a day. Ask those who know how to count. You understand? And the reason why it will seem like a day or part of a day is because in comparison to eternity, it seems like it's, it was just yesterday. Absolutely. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah to araf Surah number 7, ayat 44, Those who are in paradise will call on those who are in the hellfire. This is a conversation between people in paradise and people in the hellfire. And they will call out to the people in the hellfire and say, have you found the promise of your Lord to be true? Because indeed we found the promise of our Lord to be true. And the people of the hellfire will respond with what? Naam, yes. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that a caller will call out and then a, a partition will be placed in between people in the hellfire and people in Jannah, and the curse of Allah is upon those who, who are sinfully oppressive. So this is like part of the joy of the people in paradise to be able to rub it in the face of the people who are in the hellfire because you lived your life here lawlessly. 
You drank, you smoked, you party, you slept with whoever you wanted to sleep with. You drank whenever you wanted to drink, how much you wanted to drink. You didn't pray. You didn't fast. You didn't obey a law. You didn't obey anybody except your desires. You had your paradise. Meanwhile, on the opposite side of that, there were people who didn't drink, didn't party, got married, obeyed a law, followed the rules of God, right? Restricted themselves in their lives, even though they may have wanted to do what everybody else was doing, but they restricted themselves out of fear of Allah and hoping for what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promised. And Allah gave them what he promised them. And then they turn around to the people in hellfire and say, we found the promise of our Lord to be true. Did you find the promise of your Lord to be true? Meaning, as Allah told Shaitan, I will fill the hellfire up with you and everybody who follows you. Did you find that to be true? Yes, they did. So the people are in, in the hellfire. This is a conversation between them. Nonetheless, all of these conversations that are in the Quran, they point to the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not restricted by time. Because all of these conversations were put into the Quran before the Quran was even revealed to Angel Jibreel. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as we'll get to, when Allah had the Quran written by the pen that wrote everything, all of these conversations were already in the Quran before they even took place on earth. Before they even took place, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not restricted by time. As a matter of fact, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam mentioned in the authentic hadith, he said, La tasubbu ad-dahar. La tasubbu ad-dahar. Fa inna Allah huwa ad-dahar. The Prophet sallallahu said, I want you guys to pay close attention to this. Do not curse time. For indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is time. This hadith is in Sahih Muslim. The Prophet sallallahu said, Don't curse time. For indeed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is time. In another hadith found in Sahih al-Bukhari, the Prophet sallallahu said, Yusubbu ibn Adam ad-dahar. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says the child of Adam curses time, but I am time. I in my hands is the day and the night. Imam Nawawi, in his explanation of this hadith, he said, This is metaphorically that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is time. Allah is God, but when he says that he is time, what does that mean? And what is the backstory behind this behavior of cursing time? The Arabs, they used to curse time when misfortunes would befall them or old age or they saw a decline in the quality of their life. They would curse time. You know, I, I hate the time that I live it in. Or, you know, I curse this time that, you know, I'm experiencing this misfortune or this calamity. Right. He said, but. The Prophet ﷺ said, don't curse time, for indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is time, meaning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who decreed everything that is happening to you at that particular time in your life. So essentially, the owner of time, go, the ownership of time goes back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He owns the time. Because whatever you are experiencing in that moment, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has already predetermined that that was going to happen to you. In his hands are the light of the night and the day. He changes the affairs however he wills. He said, For in sababtum fa'iluha waqa asab alallahi jalla wa ala li anahu huwa fa'iluha wa munaziluha. So basically, if you curse time, you are essentially cursing Allah because the misfortune or the calamity that has happened to you that gives you this desire to curse time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was the one who decreed it. 
So cursing time is essentially cursing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You guys follow me? Cursing time is essentially cursing God. Because anything that you are bad at, because of what's happening to you at this particular moment in your life, Allah was the one who decreed it. So if you curse that, then you're essentially cursing him. Therefore, past, present, and future are all time constraints that only affect us. There is no past, there is no present, there is no future as it relates to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Time is a construct that only affects us as human beings. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us access to a conversation that takes place between people in hell and people in paradise, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that has already happened. It's, it's already happened. While to us, it hasn't happened yet. There's a time difference. Pay attention to this ayah. This will help give a little bit more clarity to this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in Surah to Hijjah, uh, 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 Surah to Hajj, Surah number 22, ayah 47. Turn to Surah number 22, ayah 47. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يَسْتَعْجِلُونَ بِالْعَذَابِ And they hasten, they hasten the punishment of Allah. The Arabs, they used to say to the Prophet wasallam, if what you're saying is true, then tell God to punish us right now. Tell God to bring down his punishment right now. So Allah says, وَيَسْتَعْجِلُونَ بِالْعَذَابِ They hasten Allah's punishment. وَلَيُخْلِفَ اللَّهُ وَعْدَ And Allah will never fail in his promise. وَإِنَّ يَوْمٍ عِنْدَهُ كَأَلْفِ سَنَةٍ مِمَّا تَعُدُونَ What does he say? And a day in your reckoning is how many days? A thousand years. مِمَّا تَعُدُونَ A day to Allah is a thousand years of our time. You got it now? So one day in the next life is equivalent to a thousand years in this life. So when a thousand years go by, that's almost like a day in the hereafter, in the spiritual dimension. You see how the time works? It's different. And obviously it's not a day because a thousand years is nothing in comparison to eternity. You're going into a realm where there is no time. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is revealing this just to bring us, to bring us closer to try to understand and fathom. This requires pondering and reflecting. You're not going to just sit here in a lecture and boom, like, okay, I got it. Even when I was researching this and putting all of this together, I literally had to stop for a moment and just like scratch my head like, holy crap. Like, because you never look at it like that. You're never, you know, you're never looking at it like this, right? In another verse, in Surah number 32, Ayat 5, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, يُدَبِّرُ الْأَمْرُ مِنَ السَّمَاءِ إِلَى الْأَرْضِ that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala manages the affairs of the heavens and the earth and the affair returns back to him in a day that is equivalent to a thousand years of your time. So here again, reaffirming that again, that a day in the hereafter is a thousand years, is a millennium in our reckoning. So the scholars, they say, what this means. And the yawmin wahidin min ayam al-adab, this literally, I'm, I'm going to try to contain myself here. Wallahi, when I was preparing this, I literally started crying when I, when I came across this point. 
that one day in the hellfire and hereafter, it's like a thousand years, will feel like a thousand years in this day, in this time. Think about that. People who are in the hellfire, one day in the hellfire will feel like a thousand years in this life. One day. Just think about that. And there's people who say, right? Oh, uh, you know, the Muslim, we're just going to go to the hellfire for a short period of time and then we're going to, you know, paradise. One day in the hellfire will feel like a thousand years, a millennium in this life. My grandmother at 93 years old, she said to me before she died, she said, why is God doing this to me? Why don't God just take me? I said, because he's not ready for you. But at 93, she was ready to go. I'm not talking about 93 years or 100 years or 200 years. I'm talking about a thousand years. One day in the hellfire will feel like a thousand years. SubhanAllah. You don't want to go to the hellfire. I promise you. None of us. None of us. You know, I mean, the next time you have a fire burning on your stove, just try to put your hand, your finger in there for a couple of seconds. 10 seconds. I, I, I promise you, you won't even last 10 seconds. Light a lighter and then try to stick your hand in the middle of that lighter for 10 seconds. I'll give you five seconds. You can't even do it for five seconds. Can you imagine one day in the hellfire being equivalent to a thousand years? If there's nothing that is a deterrent for you disobeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for those of you who are listening online and you haven't been praying, you haven't been fasting, you haven't been doing anything to Islam, and you're trying to make your way back around to this religion, now is the time. There's no greater time, no greater time to straighten your affairs out with God than right now. SubhanAllah. And this is why the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, That the poor people will enter into paradise 500 years earlier than the rich and the wealthy. We're talking about Muslims. The poor Muslims will enter into paradise 500 years earlier than the, the rich Muslims. Why? Because one day is equivalent to a thousand years. So that means half of half of that is 500 years. So the poor Muslims, because they didn't have enough money to give sadaqah, to give zakat, to give Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rewards them by allowing them to enter into paradise a half a day earlier than those who are wealthy, which is equivalent to 500 years. So when the Prophet said that the poor were entered to paradise 500 years earlier than the wealthy, he means because a day, a day in the hereafter is equivalent to a thousand years. So if they go a half a day earlier, then that's 500 years earlier. Problem. And the reason why is because in Islam, when a person struggles to do good deeds and is held back because of circumstances and situations that Allah tested them with, Allah rewards them double. Like the Prophet said, the person who struggles to read the Quran, he gets double the reward of the person who can read the Quran with fluency. It's double the reward. Why? Because 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tested you with a circumstance, a situation. You were not born in Arab. You were born in a country, in a society where the Arabic language was not your language. And some people, especially for us as Americans, we struggle to learn the Arabic language. We struggle. I was in the university with students of knowledge who graduated from the university by the skin of their teeth and still cannot formulate a full sentence in Arabic. Students of knowledge who are teaching and educating the Muslim community because it's, it's hard, it's very difficult. But those who make an effort to struggle, they get double the reward of someone who can do it with fluency. This is from the, the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So all of this points to the differences in time as it relates to the physical world in contrast to the spiritual world. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded that the preserved tablet, the lohim mahfud, be written, creation as we know it, including mankind, jinn, angels, had yet to be created. Nothing existed except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Prophet sallallahu in a hadith, authentic hadith collected in Sahih al-Bukhari. The Prophet sallallahu said, Can Allah walam yakun shay'un ghayruhu? The Prophet وسلم, pay attention because now we're coming to how the Quran became, uh, how Ramadan became the month of the Quran. All of this ties in. The Prophet وسلم, hadith is in Sahih Bukhari on the authority of Imran ibn Hussein. The Prophet وسلم, said that Allah was when there was nothing else. There was nothing else, but there was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And his throne was above water. And he created the heavens and the earth. And then he wrote in the lohim mahfud everything that was to take place. When Allah wrote everything, had the pen write everything that was to take place, all of that had already taken place to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because he's not restricted by time. But writing everything would be for the execution of those things bit by bit by bit in the physical world. But they were already written in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's, uh, in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's knowledge. All of this has already happened. And the first thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created was the pen. And this shows us, man, subhanAllah, the, the power of writing. When you are ever going through something in your life, the most powerful thing that you can do is grab a piece of paper and a pen and write. That's very powerful. Why? Because it puts you in control. I don't like using a computer. As you can see, all of my notes are typed, everything. Paper after paper after paper. And this whole notebook, by the end of Ramadan, this whole book will be filled. Because there's something cathartic. There's something therapeutic about grabbing a piece of paper and a pen and writing. It puts you in control. And you're taking everything that is here and you're translating that into physical form. There's nothing more powerful than that. There's nothing in the human experience, there's nothing more powerful than that. But the Prophet said the first thing that the first thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created was the pen. And then he said to the pen, Uktu, write. And the pen said, Wama Uktu, what shall I write? Now that might seem, I said this to my seventh graders when we talked about this hadith. I said, let me stop here for a moment because I, like many people, when I first read this hadith as a new Muslim, I'm just like, how did the pen talk? Like, 
you in your mind you're saying to yourself okay this is the prophet saying this this is a part of our religion i believe it but in the back of your mind you're like well, how does this even happen you know you, i guess you figure at some point in your life some scholar somewhere some law somewhere along the line will explain it to you you know it all makes sense at some point but i like to stop at these and make connections so it's real right because i don't want anybody walking away having any doubt Wallahaladim, I swear to God, I kid you not, Islam is the truth. The truth, the absolute truth, and nothing but the truth. There is no religion, there's no faith, there is no belief system on a planet that is more authentic and divinely solidified like the religion of Islam. I believe that wholeheartedly. 100%. I have absolutely no doubt about that. And I pray that the worst thing that a Muslim or any faith having person could be tested with is to be tested in your faith to walk around having doubt on the ropes trying to figure out whether this is real why well, you know i know but how do we really know you know no nah, you got to dispel all of that because as long as you hold that as long as you compartmentalize that and there's a folder somewhere stored in the back of your head shaitan will play with that you got to remove all of that so how does a pen talk well, in today's time, we have watches that talk. I don't have my watch on today, but if I was to say Siri, my watch would talk. And I'm sure that they got Apple pins at some point that will be able to talk back to you, where they program this system in it, right? And this system is now communicating with you. That's technology in 2020, 22, right? 2022. The Prophet said this over a millennium ago, a thousand years ago when there was no technology. So if we can fathom today that an Apple pen or some type of device that you can speak into and can speak back to you, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can give us the power to create that type of technology, technology and everything that we see in the world shows us the possibility of what can happen in the hereafter. This is the possibility. Because if you can talk to your watch, how is it that the Prophet ﷺ can say that Allah created a pen and told the pen to write? The pen said, what shall I write? And we're sitting here flabbergasted trying to figure out how can a pen talk? You talk to your watch. You talk to your computer. You talk to your tablet. You talk to your phone. Why are you, why are you amazed at that? Technology shows us because art imitates life. The only reason why we have access to technology that can do these great things is because there's something in nature, natural, that Allah already created that has already given us the blueprint for it. Planes. What was the blueprint for a plane? Birds. Submarines. What was the blueprint for a submarine? Whales. All of this. All you have to do is look at I'll give you the point that I'm making. When one of the sons of Adam killed the other, right? Kabil killed Habil, killed his own brother. What was he remorseful about? He was remorseful because he didn't even know how to bury his brother because there was no murder that had taken place on earth. This was the first murder on earth. So when he's looking at the dead body of his brother, he's trying to figure out how in the world do I bury him? What do I, what do, I do? What did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do to help him figure out how to bury his brother? 
Allah sent down two birds. Two birds started fighting with one another. One bird killed the other bird and then began pecking at the earth and buried the other bird. And it was from there, Robin said, that's how I get rid of the body of my brother. And he buried the bird. Here again, we benefit from nature. And in today's time, we bury bodies in the ground. But where did that technology come from? From something in nature that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has already shown us the blueprint for. You understand? Am I making sense? Yes. You know, by 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 Allah, you know, um, Allah tells you how creation is how far He can communicate. Absolutely, absolutely. So it's you know, Allah has already given us the blueprint for technology. All you have to do is look within the earth. How many ayahs does Allah tell us to look at the earth, travel through the earth, and see what happened? We don't ponder and reflect on the earth that's in front of us. The blueprint for anything that we need in technology or advancements in society is already here. It just takes a person to look deep at the world that is in front of us and come up with the idea of how to do that. It's already there. SubhanAllah. So the Prophet وسلم, he said, oh, The first thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created was the pen. And he said to the pen, write. And the pen said, oh my Lord, what shall I write? Not to mention that Allah has the power to make anything speak. On the day of judgment, Allah will make our body parts speak. There's an ayat in the Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah that Allah says, on the day we will we will seal their mouths shut. The human being is the most argumentative of creatures. Always got an excuse. Always have a reason. Always want to put forth some type of argument. But Allah will seal our mouths shut. And their hands will speak. And your feet will bear witness about all the things that you used to do. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in another ayah, that the human being will turn to his body parts and say, why have you bear witness against me? And the body parts will, this is another conversation. I'm just giving you all the jewels today, man. This is another conversation between the human being and himself. One of the conversations we're gonna talk about. On the day of judgment, when the body parts start to testify against us, the human being will turn to his hands, his feet, his body parts, and will say, Why have you bore witness against me? You're my body. And the body part will say, Allah is the one that gave us the ability to speak. The one who can give anything the ability to speak. Allah simply says to it, kun fayakun, be, and it is, and that's what it is. It's no miracle. God is all powerful, almighty. Al Qawi, Al Aziz. He says to something, be, and that's what it is. He said to the earth and the heavens and everything in it, be, and it was. 
He said to Adam, Kun fayakun be, and he was. This is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is who we worship. This is who we serve. Then you have to feel that as an abd, as a servant. You feel this is who I serve, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah tells the sun, stop moving. The sun stopped moving. The Prophet said, Mahubi said, that Allah never held the sun for anyone except one man. Yusha ibn Nun. He wanted to go into Beit al Maqdis. He wanted to go into Jerusalem and go fight the Jabarim to retrieve Beit al Maqdis from these people. But he feared traveling on Jumu'ah and the sun is setting that he would not get to Jerusalem until the nighttime, which would have been the night of Saturday, which is the Sabbath. He followed the laws of Musa. They're not allowed to fight or eat or do anything on the Sabbath. So he turns to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he says, you gave me a command. Now I'm giving you a command. Hold the sun until I get to Jerusalem and fight these people and take Beit al-Maqdis back from them. And Allah held the sun. Stop the sun from moving. This is who we serve. This is the God that we serve, subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's, it's, it's important that we feel that. And we may not feel it all the time, you know, because we go about our day, but in the back of our conscious and our minds, fasting in the month of Ramadan gives us that ability to channel what is called taqwa. Channel taqwa. You understand? So that way we can use it when we need it. This is what Ramadan is all about. Being able to harness taqwa and then after Ramadan is over, be able to channel it when we need it. But if you're not working on taqwa during Ramadan, then you will never be able to leverage your taqwa when you need it. You won't be able to leverage it because you wasn't working on it. You only get out of anything what you put into it, whether that's your marriage, whether that's your business, whether that's your life, whether that's your health, whether that's your spirituality, it doesn't matter. You only get out of something what you put into it. You can't pour from an empty cup. And that's a fact. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the pen to write. The pen said, what shall I write? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, اُكْتُبْ كُلَّمَا هُوَ كَائِنْ وَمَقَادِرُ كُلِّ شَيْءِ حَتَّى تَقُومَ السَّاعَةِ Write everything that is to take place from now until the day of judgment. This was at the very beginning. This hadith is collected in the Sunan of Abu Dawood. Some scholars say that the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was the first thing that Allah created. So this is huge debate among scholars whether or not the throne of Allah was created first or the pen was created first. Nonetheless, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ordered the pen to write and then he dictated or narrated to the pen everything that the pen was to write detail for detail. Because as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the pen to write, what is the pen writing? Whatever Allah is telling the pen to write. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is basically dictating to the pen what to write. Right now we have technology where you can speak into your phone and your phone will type your words up. Here again, technology benefiting from nature. If it's in nature, nature proves to us that maybe we don't have the intellect or the technology yet, but the possibility. As long as we see it in, in society, we see it in nature, 
It's, it's a possibility. It can happen. We now have technology. You can speak into a microphone and we'll automatically type in your words. You ain't got to write nothing. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did this eons ago. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala dictates to the pen what it should write. Detail for detail. Everything that is to take place from the beginning of creation all the way up until the last person to enter into paradise, the last person to enter into the Detail for detail. Every single event, occurrence, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala spoke it into existence. And a beautiful example of how powerful words are because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala dictated to the pen and as the pen is writing, these things, these events are coming into play. That shows us the power of words. That shows us the power of speaking things into existence. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in surah number 6, ayah 59. Surah to An'am, one of my favorite surahs. Surah number 6, ayah 59. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says in the Quran, it's one of my favorite ayahs. A'udhu billahi minash وَعِنْدَهُ مَفَاتِحُ الْغَيْبِ لَا يَعْلَمُهَا إِلَّا هُمْ وَيَعْلَمُ مَا فِي الْبَرِّ وَالْبَحْرِ وَمَا تَسْقُطُ مِنْ وَرَقَةٍ إِلَّا يَعْلَمُهَا وَلَا حَبَّةٍ فِي ظُلُمَاتِ الْأَرْضِ وَلَا رَطَبٍ وَلَا يَابِسٍ إِلَّا فِي كِتَابٍ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says, To Allah belongs the keys of the unseen. Keys of the unseen world. None knows the keys of the unseen except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Meaning no one knows what's going to happen tomorrow. No one knows what's going to happen next week, next year, next month, five years from now, ten years from now, except Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As a human being, that makes you feel very limited. I don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. As a matter of fact, we don't know what's going to happen 10 minutes from now. While we have all of the money in the world, all of the resources in the world, we have so much that has made us so arrogant as human beings. We don't even know what's going to happen 10 minutes from now. That within itself is humbling. Because as human beings, especially in today's time with all of this technology, all of social media, we like to know what's going on ahead of time. Because it gives us a sense of control. It gives us a sense of power that I know what's happening. People put trackers on their spouse's phones so I can know where they're going, so I can know who they're with. We monitor people's phones. We monitor people's conversations. Security is the biggest issue in our society today. With companies like Apple, with companies like Samsung, who are constantly being challenged by governments to give up information that will give them access to people's you know, inf personal information because the government wants to have control. We want to know what you're thinking. So we put things in place like artificial intelligence. We put it into your phone, we program it into your phone, program it into your TV, 
so that your artificial intelligence is watching your purchases, watching the places that you frequent, watching your conversations. You ever have a conversation with someone, open up your cell phone, boom, there's an ad right there on your phone based upon the conversation you just had. That's called artificial intelligence, watching everything you do, watching everything you say so that we can monitor your behavior so we can create a profile of you so we can know what you're thinking. There was a movie that came out some years ago uh, where a person, I think Tom Cruise was in the movie, somebody was in the movie, where they were literally arresting people for thinking about committing a crime. Remember? Minority Report, there you go. Absolutely. We think that you are going to commit a crime because we can read your brain waves. The artificial uh, intelligence can read your, your behavior patterns, and we can see that there's a change in your beha behavior patterns. And, you know, and of course, this is not us. This is the powers that be. They always want to be in control of your behaviors. Right? I remember this was the thing that used to burden me so much in school. Right? So I had this teacher. Miss Greenberg, I never forget this woman. And I would come in, I was an angry kid, right? I grew up in a foster home. I didn't have access to my parents that would make any kid angry, all right? But they associate emotion with something is wrong. They gotta categorize you, they gotta pathologize it, they gotta put a label on it because that gives them power. You understand? Putting a label on something gives you power over that thing because now you can categorize it, you can pathologize, you can label it, and then you can give all of the descriptions and characteristics. Right? This is what we do to black children all the time. That's ADHD. What is ADHD? Oh, it's this. And we diagnose it. We come up with all of these different behavior moods and patterns and swings and things like this so that we can control it. And I come in one day, I used to come in and I always was angry, it's an angry kid, right? And, oh, he's angry. He's, um, he's using threatening behavior because I'm frowning, because I'm angry, I'm upset. It's never that I'm sad. It's never that, you know, let me look deeper into your situation or I see that you don't have both of your parents. No. Oh, he, he doesn't want to mingle with the other children. Something must be wrong with him. He's antisocial, right? And oh, you're giving off, stop with your nonverbals. And I'm just like, what? See, that's what I'm talking. And they do that to you now. You get into an argument, usually with a white person, you get into an argument, and they, the smallest little, you know, change, huh? Microaggressions. Right, exactly. Yes. They, they'll control you. And they'll label you and they'll put you in a box and they'll categorize you and off you go. So you got to stand there. Yes. Uh-huh. Smile. You know, because that's what they do. They can hate your guts. And then, hi, good morning. You know, how you doing? But they can't stand you. They've learned how to mask those things. Black people are emotional. Not just emotional. We're passionate people. When I'm talking, sometimes people used to say, and they, they would box me in, oh, you're mad emotional. I'm like, I'm not emotional. I'm passionate. There's a big difference between the two. And even if I am emotional, why is that a bad thing? Are we not human beings made up of emotions? That's what we are. All underneath this skin is nothing but nerves, 
you touch a particular nerve, you're going to ignite an emotion. You understand? That's all we are underneath the skin. SubhanAllah, but yeah, it was done to me and I used to hate that. Go to the principal, I'm like, for what? Oh, now you're raising your voice. I'm like, this woman is going to drive me crazy. I never, I will never forget this woman. She has left an imprint on my soul, literally. Sixth grade, I never forget this woman. And so if any of you are teachers and you work with children, be mindful of the impression that you leave on a soul. Because they will never forget that. They will never forget that. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this ayah, surah number six, ayah 59, Allah says, to him is mafatihul ghayb, the keys of the unseen. La ya'lamuha illahu, none knows them except him. Wa ya'lamu ma fil barri wal bahr, Allah knows what takes place on land and on sea. Wa ma tasqutu min waraqatin illa ya'lamuha. Not a leaf falls from the tree except that he knows about it. Not a leaf, no matter where in the earth, falls off the tree except that Allah knows about it. Wa la habbatin fi thulmatil ard. And not a seed grows in the depths of the dirt, in the darkness of the night, except that Allah knows about it, whether wet or dry. Except that it is already recorded and documented in a, a clear book. That means that when Allah told the pen to write, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was so detailed. Allah was detailed down to the number of seeds in the earth. What tree would grow? What tree wouldn't grow? How many leaves are going to fall off the tree? We're talking about however millions and millions or billions of years the earth has been around. Everything that has taken place on this earth has already been documented. This is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, al-alim, the all-knowledgeable. Al-khabir, the all-aware. Every single detail down to the breaths that you take, down to the amount of heartbeats your heart is going to take. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the pen, and this person is going to be created. He's going to be born. This is how many heartbeats he's going to have within a whole entire lifetime. This is how much provision is going to come to him or her. This is how many children she's going to have. This is how many children he's going to have. This is how many times he's going to be married. This is how many times she's going to be married. This is the house they're going to live in. This is the house they're not going to live in. This is the apartment they're going to start off with. I mean, every single detail. Every detail. SubhanAllah. I mean, it's beyond what you can even fathom. Even if you sat down and you pondered that, you say to yourself, how in the world is that even possible? But this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Even down to the trials and the misfortunes that we experience in life, all of this has been divinely arranged, calculated, even before we were brought into existence. Another verse that'll help us process a lot of the things that we experience in life. Surah number 57, ayah 22. Turn to this ayah. It's another beautiful ayah in the Quran that helps us to make sense of what's going on in our lives. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says in the Quran, مَا أَصَابَ مِن مُصِيبَةٍ فِي الْأَرْضِ وَلَا فِي Allah 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that there is no calamity. Ma'asaba min musibah. No musibah, no calamity, misfortune befalls you, whether in the earth or whether within yourselves, except that it is already recorded in a book. Here we're saying, talking about the same book, Lohim Mahfoud. Talking about the same book. Great book. Except that it is already in, recorded in a book before we even execute it, before we even bring it into fruition, it was already recorded. Then Allah says, Why? Why? Why does He do this? And we do this so that you do not despair over what passed you by and you do not become arrogant because of what was given to you. This helps us keep a balance. Because if you know that what missed you was already written in the book, you don't despair, you don't feel bad, you don't feel anything because you know that it wasn't meant for you to have it anyway. And whatever comes to you, you don't become overly excited and arrogant because you know that no matter what you did in your life, you was going to get it regardless because it was already written for you. This is the way we maintain balance in our lives. This helps us to walk the earth with clarity. We become a walking specific, not a wandering generality, not knowing what's going on. We know exactly what is happening. And when you digest this type of stuff, this is the type of stuff that makes you mad because it's being told you. This is the type of information that makes you uncontrollable. And people are afraid of you. You become dangerous. You become dangerous. Because people can't control you, because you got clarity. You have clarity when you walk, you walk with clarity. This is the way you maintain balance. We did this so that you do not despair over what passed you by, and you do not become overly exaggerated or, you know, you do not become arrogant or puffed up with pride or haughty because of what was given you. Given to you. And the, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even all the way down to who exactly is going to paradise and who is exactly going to the hellfire is already documented in this book. That means that every single one of us in this room, every single one of you listening right now, where you're going in the hereafter has already been written for you. Now that begs the question that even the Sahaba asked the Prophet well, why should we do good deeds if it's already decided where we're going? Anyone want to answer that question? Why should we do good deeds if where we are going in the hereafter, whether the hell or the paradise, is already written for us? What's the purpose in doing good deeds? Because you're going to be questioned about it. Okay? No, Allah doesn't change. Whatever's written is written. Allah does not change anything. As a matter of fact, there are verses in the Quran where Allah says, Allah, la Allah does not fail in his promise. Whatever he has written will not be changed. Yeah, but if you're going to hell, then doing good deed, what, is, what does that benefit you? If you're already going to the hellfire. For our conscience? For our own, like, feelings in the sense to, if I know I'm doing wrong, 
my whole life that nine times out of ten you think it's going to fail, but you're going to do it. You try to get close to the mercy of the Lord, follow the storms, do all the holy songs, but then you think that you will give yourself a, a shot. Even though you, you don't know, even then. Okay, you 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 right there. You said something that was right on the money. You don't know where you're going. If you know where you were going, then that question would be relevant. Why should I do any good deeds? I know I'm going to hell, so why should I do anything good? That makes sense. So the reason why we continue to do good, the reason why we continue to do good is because we don't know where we're going. And we live our lives, as you said, at least trying to give ourselves a shot. Allah knows ultimately where we're going, but we do good deeds in hopes that what we've done will be acknowledged by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the day of judgment, and Allah will overlook our, because essentially as believers living between fear and hope. That's our lives, between fear and hope. When people ask that question all the time, you know, why should I do any good deeds if where I'm going has already been written? Because you don't know where you're going. If you knew where you were going, then that question would be relevant. But the Prophet وسلم, he mentioned in a hadith that was collected in Sahih Bukhari and Muslim. He said, Ma minkum min ahadin illa wa kad katabahu fil jannah. The Prophet وسلم, he said in this hadith, that there's none from amongst you except that your place in paradise or your place in hellfire has already been written for you. So the Sahaba, like many of us, they said, Ya Rasulullah, falimada wa afalana kitabatina or kitabina. They said, Oh Messenger of Allah, so why not just do live our lives and just leave it up to Allah for him to decide? If he already knows where we're going, then why impose in all of this salat and prayer and fasting? Why impose all of this stuff on us if Allah already knows? And the Prophet he said, He said, do good deeds because everyone will find what is easy for them based upon where they're destined to go. I'll say that again. He said, do good deeds because everyone will find easy for them to do where they are destined to go. If you are destined to go to the hellfire, then you will find the deeds of people who go into the hellfire easy. It comes natural. You ever seen a person just live their life in complete sin and you say to yourself, I'm talking about a Muslim, and you say to yourself, man, how can you just do that with such ease? Man, that's not ignorance. Because even a morally conscious person would know that you're not supposed to be doing that. You ain't got to be Muslim to know. Some of the stuff that I see Muslims doing, I didn't even do as a non-Muslim. And I wasn't the best of non-Muslims. But I mean, like, like even a morally conscious individual would know not to do something like that. You don't have to be Muslim to know the difference between right and wrong. The Prophet ﷺ, he said, that like people are like precious metals from the earth. Some are like gold, some are like silver, some are like brass, some are like iron. The best of you before Islam will be the best of you in Islam. I want to stop there. The best of you before Islam, what is he referring to? He's talking about people who are morally conscious, people who may not have had any religion. 
but they obeyed their moral conscience. They knew the difference between right and wrong. The Prophet said, I came to perfect moral character. He didn't say, I came to establish moral character. He didn't say, I came to give you moral character. Moral character is something that we are all taught based upon the environments that we grow up in, the cultures that we come from. They teach moral character. They teach moral consciousness of most all societies other than the savages that, that came from Europe, right? And they'll have you believe that we are the savages. No, we were morally conscious people. We were morally conscious people on the great old continent of Africa, absolutely, 100%. The Europeans, many of them, were savages. They knew nothing about the basics of even cleanliness. And in many instances today still struggle with that. And this is not a black or white thing. This is understanding history opposite the way that we were taught it. We were taught that we were savages, running around with bones in our noses and, you know, running around naked and, you know, in the jungles. And, you know, this is the images that were portrayed about us. And until we reverse that, quite naturally, you ask yourself, well, where did those images come from? And where did that history come from? It had to come from, as they say, the history is written by the victors. History is written by the victors. We were not victorious, evidenced by our condition currently. They were victorious. So obviously they wrote the history books. And many around the world, including Muslims in the outer world and the Asian, the, the part of large part of Asia that many Muslims trace their roots back to, they have a Eurocentric worldview where they view us as African-Americans no different than the way that we were portrayed in many of the history because they were colonized by the same people as well. So, yeah. so in this rather colossal record of everything called the Lohim Mahfud, which is held in Baytul Izza, the house of honor, including the Quran, and this colossal record of everything that Allah taught, told the pen to write, amongst the things that Allah told the pen to write was the Quran. So the Quran, was in Lohim Mahfud. Allah told the pen, uh, and at this time I'm going to reveal the Quran to my prophet, who will be Prophet Muhammad. Angel Jibril is going to bring that down to him over a period of 23 years. Or this incident is going to happen, I'm going to reveal that ayah. This incident is going to happen, I'm going to reveal that ayah. This incident is going to happen, I'm going to reveal this whole surah. That incident is going to happen, I'm going to reveal that ayah, and that ayah, and that ayah. 6,323 ayahs in the Quran. Every single one of them, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wrote, told the pen to write exactly when that ayah was going to be revealed and the situation that would occur that would cause that ayah to be revealed, every single detail. So in the Lohim Mahfud, in this preserved tablet, was the Quran. Abdullah bin Abbas, he said, he said that the Quran was part of the Lohim Mahfud, was in the information that was in Lohim Mahfud was the Quran. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala placed the Lohim Mahfud, this preserved tablet, in Baytul Izza, the house of honor that is in the heavens. 
And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave this Quran to Angel Jibreel who brought it down to the Prophet In another narration, Abdullah ibn Abbas he said, Abdullah bin Abbas in another bird and another narration, he said that the Quran was not revealed all at one time. Pay attention because I'm going to explain how the Quran was not revealed to Prophet Muhammad. Abdullah ibn Abbas said the Quran was not revealed all at one time. He said, rather, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had the Quran written. It was in uh, Lohin Mahfud, the preserved tablet, which was in the highest heaven, right? In the lowest heaven, in the lowest heaven. And Angel Jibreel used to bring it down to Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam over a period of 23 years. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, شهر رمضان الذي أنزل فيه القرآن هدى للناس وبينات من الهدى والفرقان. So when Allah subhanahu wa taala says the month of Ramadan in which the Quran was revealed, Surah number two, ayah one eighty-five. Pay attention to this ayah because this is here again we are breaking down. These generational misinformation that's being passed, generational misnomers have been passed down generation after generation in the Muslim community. If you were to ask the average Muslim uh, who was the Quran revealed to in Ramadan, most people would say Prophet Muhammad. The Quran is not revealed to Prophet Muhammad. If you say that, many Muslim women would be clutching their pearls, many Muslim men would be grabbing their beards, talking about what are you talking about? The Quran was not revealed to Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam in Ramadan. Allah subhanahu wa taala says the month of Ramadan in which the Quran was revealed as a guidance for all of men. So we know that the Quran was revealed in Ramadan, right? Allah doesn't mention to who; He just said it was sent down in Ramadan. Now go to Surah to uh, Al Qadr, which I think is like Surah 97, 96, 97, uh, in the 90s. 97. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Inna anzalnahu fi laylatul qadr. Indeed, we revealed it, meaning the Quran, in laylatul qadr. Allah still didn't tell us who he gave it to. But we know that the Quran was revealed in Ramadan, and now we know that the Quran was revealed laylatul qadr, which is in the last 10 nights of Ramadan. Who was it revealed to? Couldn't have been revealed to Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam because the whole Quran was not given to Prophet Muhammad all at once. The first ayats given to Prophet Muhammad were only five. Iqra, Bismi Rabbika al-Ladhi Khalaq, Khalaq al-Insana min Ala. Iqra wa Rabbuka al-Akram. To the end of those ayats, those were the only first ayats given to Prophet Muhammad, and that did not happen in Ramadan. So when Allah says that He revealed the Quran in Ramadan. And that he revealed it Laylatul Qadr. Who was he referring to? Angel Jibreel. Where was it revealed from? From Lohim Mahfud to the lowest heaven. It was taken from the Lohim Mahfud and it was sent down to the lowest heaven to give Angel 
to real access to it to bring it down to Prophet Muhammad وسلم, in bits and pieces over a period of 23 years. This means that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He selected bits and pieces of conversations that took place prior to the existence of human beings and inserted them into the Quran, His last and final revelation for mankind, not the entire conversations but bits and pieces of the conversations that he saw that would be beneficial for our guidance, irrespective of time, place, and circumstance. This within itself is wisdom that is beyond comprehension. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Al-Hakim, the most wise. SubhanAllah. And I'll end with this last point. The scholars, they say, al-hikmah, wisdom, arba'atu anwa'at, wisdom is four types. Something practical that we can walk away. The wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is four types. Number one, al-hikmah al-dahira, li'umum al-nas. The first type of wisdom of God, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that is apparent for everybody. Conspicuous. Everybody can see the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Everybody can see the wisdom of Allah in the system that we know as the religion of Islam. We can see the wisdom in it. Everybody can see the wisdom of fasting. You can see the wisdom. It's clear. Second type of wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, al-hikmah al-khafifa, la ya'lamuha illa al-ulama. The second type of wisdom of Allah is the wisdom that is inconspicuous. Not everybody can pick up on it. Not everybody has access to it, except those whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grants knowledge. In Surah number 29, Ayah 43, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, And these are the examples, metaphors that we put forward for mankind, and most people don't truly understand them, except those who have been granted knowledge. Number three, from the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, مَا لَا يَعْلَمُهَا إِلَّا بِوَحْيِ فَهَذَا لَا يَعْلَمُهَا إِلَّا النَّبِيِّ بِوَحْيِ مِنْ اللَّهِ جَلَوَعَلَى The third type of wisdom of Allah is the wisdom that is infused in Allah's revelation, which none knows except the prophets and messengers because they are the one, only ones to receive revelation. And the fourth type of wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, مَا اسْتَأْثَرَهُ اللَّهُ بِعِلْمِهِ and that is the knowledge or the wisdom that only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has that none knows except him. Like what? Like the letters at the beginning of the surahs, like Alif Yusuf Ali translation of the Quran and many other uh, translations of the Quran, they take shots at what these letters mean. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clearly tells us that none knows what they mean except him. Letter Kaf, Ha Ya Ain Saad, Ha Meem, 
What, what do these letters represent? We can ponder until Yom Al-Qiyamah. None knows. Another wisdom that only Allah knows is why Salatul Maghrib is Tarata Raka'ah? Why is Salatul Maghrib three Raka'ah? Why is Fajr two? And then Dohor Asr and Isha'ah four. None knows why. And this is from why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Quran in Surah number 221, ayah 23, Allah should not be questioned about what he does, but you will be questioned about what you do. So there's nothing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does except that there is wisdom in it. Some of us know it and understand it. Some of us have been granted access like scholars and people of knowledge who can explain it to those who don't know. And then there are some that we will never know. Some things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does that we will never know. And so much like the stories in the Quran, it is our responsibility to dig deep into these conversations that are in the Quran and try to extract the jewels and the lessons that are embedded in them. So we'll stop here, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, my next class, which will be on Thursday, inshallah ta'ala, we're not having a class tomorrow. Uh, it was the behavior of the Prophet wasallam that he would not overburden his sahaba by preaching to them every day. So I want to follow that methodology. And I know some people will say, well, no, I'm cool. I'm fine. Let's have class every single day. I need a break. Let me have a, let me have a pause. A breather, if you will. Okay. Um, I leave work. I go home briefly. And then I come straight here. So I, I need a break too. So we won't have class tomorrow. But we'll have class on Thursday, inshallah, and Friday. And Friday, inshallah, we'll know whether or not, my mother will know whether or not the, the moon has been sighted, the new moon has been sighted or not. And so we'll have a definitive answer whether or not Ramadan will begin on Saturday or on Sunday, All right. Um, and when I start on Thursday, we're just about done with the introduction. Uh, when I begin on Thursday, we'll talk about um, dialogue from a literary standpoint. You know, why is dialogue important? Why is conversation, these conversations, what are they for? Why, why did Allah put these conversations in the Quran? And some of the benefits that we can expect to get from these conversations that are in the Quran. So with that, inshallah ta'ala, I will stop here. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. I don't know if there were any questions or comments. We got a few minutes before the end. Uh, but inshallah, how, what, how many minutes we have? Okay. Uh, hold on, he had his hand up first. Go ahead. I guess um, it's one of those conversations. Um, like, really, a, a, just a shot in the dark question as to um, on the day of judgment, um, we're talking about conversation. I don't know if, you know, going to the hellfire, going into heaven, you know, uh, people will feel complete with their reward or, um, or some people are really dying to know some of these questions or unresolved answers or or discussions, you know what I'm saying, or who was really right or wrong at that particular conversation. So I don't know if we would actually resolve those things on the day of judgment versus, you know, it, it was really about what you did, you, you know what I'm saying, and, and you were complete with your reward. Thank you. 
That's more of a statement than it is a question. But I, I get your point. I get your point. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I guess we got to wait until we get there to, to know whether or not. But I mean, anybody who goes to paradise will be satisfied. I promise you. <laughs> Just hope that Allah allow me to get to paradise and I'll, I'll let you know once I get there. I, I was truly satisfied. <laughs> right. Uh, in the back, you, you had a question? Yes, absolutely. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he designed us as human beings and has given us, you know, uh, certain emotions, feelings that bring us back to him. And this is provided that you have not corrupted the owner of all of your other faculties. And that is what? Your heart. As long as the heart is sound, all of the other faculties, emotions, feelings that are connected to that will also be sound. The moment you corrupt the heart, the heart is the owner, Malik al-A'adha, as the scholars say, that the heart is the king of all of your other faculties. The moment you corrupt your heart, everything else is in disarray. You won't be able to process. You won't be able to see the world properly. You won't be able to make proper decisions that are pleasing to God. They may be pleasing to your desires, but they may not be pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I can guarantee you they won't be pleasing to Allah. Um, the way you see things, the way you approach things, the way you feel about things, because the reference for all of that, we always refer or defer back to the heart. So this is why it's very important for us to keep the heart pure, keep the heart sound, keep the heart free from inclining towards sins, because once you corrupt that, you corrupt everything else that is attached to it. All right, the Prophet said, That in the body there is a lump of flesh, that if it's sound, if it's healthy, then the rest of the body will be sound and healthy. But if it is unhealthy, corrupt, then the rest of the body will be unhealthy and corrupt. And indeed, that lump of flesh is the heart. So, giving us these tools or these feelings, these emotions like remorse, like regret like shame, all of these things were given to us as like signposts to help us find our way back to Allah. But the moment that you corrupt your heart, a person with a corrupt heart doesn't feel remorse. A person with a corrupt heart doesn't feel remorse. As I mentioned the story of Abdurrahman ibn Muljam, who was the guy who killed Ali ibn Abi Talib. This is the, the cousin of the Prophet Sallallahu the son-in-law of the Prophet the fourth Khalifa of the Muslims. And the one who killed him, Abdurrahman ibn Muljam, was a memorizer of the Quran, half of Quran. Umar sent him to Egypt to teach the people of Egypt the Quran. And he killed Ali ibn Abi Talib. Felt no remorse. When they captured him to extract retribution on him for what he did to Ali ibn Abi Talib, he said, La taqtuluni marratin wahida. He said, Don't kill me all at once. He said, He said, don't kill me all at once. He said, chop my body parts into little pieces so I can see myself being punished for the sake of Allah. This is a corrupt heart. This person is never going to make tawbah. 
This is why the scholars say that a person of bid'ah, the person of innovation, will never repent. There is no forgiveness for the person of innovation because they are never going to repent. It's a corruption of the heart by way of either shahwat or shubuhat, by either the way of lowly desires, animalistic impulses, or by doubts and misconceptions. And shaitan doesn't care whether it's the latter or the former, just as long as your heart is corrupt. You don't care how it gets corrupt. You can corrupt your heart with misinformation, misunderstanding of things, or you can corrupt your heart by continuously disobeying Allah, committing sin, engaging in disobedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it's very important that we keep our hearts free from becoming attached. You sin, you make toba, you feel remorse, you feel regret, you feel horrible, you feel you know like your shame is being stripped from you. You return back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. These are things that pull you back. Your guideposts bringing you back to Allah. But the moment you corrupt your heart, those things, you don't even feel remorse anymore. You see a Muslim committing sin and they feel no shame. They do it on social media and you're like, Man, you, you don't feel no shame. You just gonna post that on social media. Feel nothing. And the moment you kind of just poke them a little bit and say, hey, I'm going to send you a DM. Hey, you know, sound like I just wanted to bring your attention to something. You know, that's hard. Oh, well, if you don't like my page, you know, get off my page. This is my page. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know. I try. Person feels no shame. They have corrupted their hearts to a point by either committing sin or because they either believe that that thing is okay. Shahawak, shuwak. Two dangerous things. And Shaitan here again doesn't care whether it's the latter or the former, just as long as your heart is not straight. Uh, we'll stop here, inshallah. I think it's time for this. Do you guys feel it? You feel the Ramadan? You feel the air? You feel it? You feel the atmosphere? You feel it? It's just like slowly, like a cloud, just slowly coming upon you. I, I feel it. I feel the energy. It's here. Happy, alhamdulillah. We, we needed this. We needed this. Ramadan, like, you know. Nothing is real quick, but go for it. Okay, so that's not real quick. <laughs> All right, no, but I, I want I want you to I want you to walk away feeling like you have a, a better grasp of that concept because God forbid you leave out of here and Shaitan is kind of toying around with that idea in your head. Um, but here again, her question is: uh, So are we saying that no matter how much bad or how much good we do, nothing can change our final destination? Uh, whether to the paradise or to the hellfire. No. What is written has already been decided. It has already been decided. Now, when we do good or we do bad, all right, that will determine to what extent we will end up in the hellfire or in paradise because those are our choices. Going to paradise or going to the hellfire was not our choice. That's not our choice. That has already been decided. You follow me? That was decided by God. We didn't decide that. To what extent we go to paradise, whether you're in the lower tiers of paradise or you are the highest place of paradise, that's your choice. Why? Because that will be contingent on the deeds that you made a conscious decision to do. 
So if you just did the bare minimum and you end up in the lowest place in paradise, that was your choice. But if you exerted yourself, you got up at the third of the night, you fasted Mondays and Thursdays, you read the Quran, you obeyed Allah, you stayed away from what was haram, you were from the Iliyin, you were from those, from the highest tiers of paradise, that was by your choice. It was already decreed you were going to paradise. But where at in paradise, that was your choice. So for a person that goes to the hellfire, already decided that he's going to the hellfire. But if he's going to be in the lowest depths of the hellfire, or he's going to have the punishment that is the least amount of punishment in the hellfire. If he's going to be in a punishment in the hellfire for a particular period of time and then go to paradise, that was his choice. Allah had already written that he was going to paradise, but some of his deeds didn't add up on the day of judgment. So he got to go to the hellfire first. That was his choice. That was his choice. So the things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has already been decreed, you can't change that. But what we will be held accountable for is the efforts that we put forward or lack thereof. As Allah says in the Quran, لِكُلِّنْ دَرَجَاتٍ مِمَّا عَمِلُوا And for everyone, there will be a particular level, whether in paradise or hellfire, a particular status with God or lack thereof, مِمَّا عَمِلُوا Because of the deeds that they have done. We do control that. Does, does that. does that make sense? Alhamdulillah. That's why I want to call that there. Alhamdulillah. I feel like the air is on. 